all the different complex parts became still and peaceful. That was the beginning of my spirit journey, innocent enough. I don't think of God with a capital G. My focus is on daily moment-to-moment living, which can, I believe, be a sacred spiritual experience. The outer form, the practice, and the label may be different for each of us, but in a very deep and all-encompassing way, I feel we are not alone. There is a spirit, a higher power, the universe, guiding us, leading us to what we are meant to learn and do, our destiny, our unique contribution to others. After my first book, Plain and Simple, was published, I was surprised at first to receive many kind invitations to speak at churches, synagogues, and temples, Mormon, Episcopalian, Baptist, Jewish, Zen Buddhist. I first spoke at a First Presbyterian church where I asked the minister, Why did you invite me to talk? Because you are speaking about human values, and we all need to be reminded of human values, he answered. His answer was a great gift. That's what I'm learning, to remind myself to see with fresh eyes the sacredness in everyday life. Small miracles are all around us. We can find them everywhere, in our home, in our daily activities, and where they are hardest to see, in ourselves. Plain and Simple is about the time I spent with the Amish and what I learned from their simpler way of life. Their life was a celebration of the ordinary. They valued work, all work. How they did things was as important as what they did. I learned the power of having limits. The Amish have made one large choice. They lead a deeply religious life. Everything they do grows out of that choice. I was brought up to believe the more choices I had, the better. But I was drowning in choices. There's a big difference between having lots of choices and making a choice. If you make a choice, you may have to eliminate certain things, but you can invest meaning in the things that remain. To simplify, I have to say no, I remind myself. The Amish never preached to me. They never said, our way is better. They prayed for five minutes every morning and every evening. They spent the rest of their time living what they believed. Their life was all of one piece, all ordinary and all sacred. It became a wonderful model to aim for. When I came home and tried to live what I had learned, it was harder than I expected. One day I received a phone call that Plain and Simple had made the New York Times bestseller list. I was thrilled. That afternoon I went to my local vegetable market and by chance bumped into a good friend. Beaming, I told her the remarkable news. She didn't even smile. Her first response was, what number are you? In that moment, I realized that we live in a world where nothing one does is ever enough. When will enough be enough? I began to ask myself. When I began writing my book, Everyday Sacred, I was filled with doubt. A critical voice inside me kept saying, how dare you write a book with the word sacred in the title? You're not an expert. Then I met Yvonne Rand, a wonderful, very wise Zen Buddhist priest. You should be writing this book, not me, I said to her. Sue, she responded in a thoughtful tone. We can both write books. I can write one kind of book, but there are many, many people out there just like you, struggling to make every day count and wondering why they're never content. With that, I was able to relax and continue my work. Soon after my conversation with Yvonne, 
an image of a monk's begging bowl came to me. I'm not a Buddhist, but I trusted the image of the begging bowl to guide me on my journey. I decided I would approach each day with my life an empty bowl. Every morning would bring a new, empty, fresh start. I would look at my ordinary life and do nothing differently, nothing at all, but instead simply examine what is there. I wouldn't try to become a great meditator or anything else. I'd just be myself. This is when I began to understand that God, or Spirit, is all around us. Our practice is to open our eyes and simply look around. For example, a wonderful man named Martin works in my favorite coffee house. No matter how long the line is or how impatient the customers are, he never loses his bearings. He never seems hurried or rushed. He performs his job with great care. Just at the last moment, as he prepares my cappuccino, he waves his hand and, with a gentle flourish, creates a little smiling face in the foam. This, for me, is a sacred ritual. To notice these little everyday events is to notice the sacred with a small s. Wherever I go and whomever I speak to, a religious group, homemakers, artists, business people, I sense a hunger or a longing, even when people aren't so sure what's missing in their lives. Perhaps appreciating the beauty in everyday things, noticing the sacredness of everyday life is something we need to cultivate in our lives. It requires some willingness and a good deal of practice. Don't think for a moment that I wake up every day, look around and experience pure joy all the time, or that I'm always able to appreciate the small joys in life. I'm not. I'd like to be perfectly aware all the time, but I'm not. While writing Everyday Sacred, I discovered I had a harsh, critical voice inside me. I had lived with it so long, I never noticed the influence it was having on my life. I not only listened to, but believed what this harsh judge was saying. This voice passed judgment on everything I did. Not everyone has a harsh judge, but many of us have some inner voice that has the power to undercut, to make us doubt ourselves, and to leave us wondering why we aren't more content. I realized it was important to find a different and kinder relationship with my judge because of its power to drain my positive energy. Learning to be more generous with ourselves is not selfishness. It is just the opposite. Trusting our own inner voice and needs helps us to be more truly generous with others. One of the most important lessons I've learned has to do with cracked pots. After admiring a friend's beautiful clay pot, I went to meet the wonderful man, Kevin, who made it. Often, just as Kevin was about to finish a pot, he would drop it, and it would shatter. Eventually, it dawned on him that he had a very destructive side, like my harsh judge. He decided to make a pot, consciously break it, and then piece it back together. Once he gave his saboteur a voice, he noticed he didn't ruin as many pots. I took a workshop with Kevin. Right in the middle of it, he stopped and asked, Would anyone like to crack their pot? I raised my hand, picked one of my bowls, and then tried and tried to crack it on his cement floor. To my surprise, it was very difficult. I wouldn't let go. As in life, we say we want to change things, but then we see how hard change is. You want to, but something holds you back. Finally, I let go and the bowl cracked in half. Then it was easy to crack the bowl into more pieces. As I collected them, Kevin came over and said, Save the slivers. He showed me how to reassemble the pieces of my cracked pot. 
I had to find two pieces that matched, like a jigsaw puzzle, and then with shipbuilder's glue hold the pieces very still for five minutes until they set. Piece by piece, my pot was put back together. When I held the pieced-together pot in my hands, a circle was completed. It was remarkable. In the past, no matter what I did or accomplished, I still thought something was missing in my life and never understood what it was. As I looked at the pot, I saw that nothing was missing. Nothing. I saw I was whole. At that same moment, I realized that this is true for each of us. We can spend our time and good energy focused on our imperfections, cracks, slivers, and flaws, or we can shift our perspective to see that those same qualities are what make us unique. My bowl was far more interesting than before it had cracked. And then I had one of those aha moments I saw, really saw, in every cell in my body. To be whole doesn't mean we have to be perfect. With that in mind, what really interests me is how we can bring spirit into form. How we can live our spirituality, not just talk about it or preach it, but really live it. How do you bring your spirit into your real life? How do you face your own little and big struggles? When I started this journey, I was hoping for a big miracle, one that would change my life dramatically. What I found instead was far more useful, the extreme importance of small things. Maybe the most sacred things are the hardest to see because they're so obvious. My son, David, sends a weekly card to his 92-year-old grandmother. This is every bit as special as anything else he does. We all have our own version of David's card to his grandmother. Too often we take these small acts of kindness for granted. We think we have to offer others great achievements or gifts. Small acts of kindness make a difference. They have echoes out of proportion to the effort they take. Often I remind myself of something that Mother Teresa said. We do not do great things. We do only small things with great love. Knowing that things I have learned from my own struggles can be of use to others is deeply nourishing to me. Always striving for bigger, better, and more is, I believe, the disease of our culture. We set ourselves up to fail, which is a terrible waste of good energy and good spirit. When will enough be enough? I want to be able to say, who I am is enough. What I am doing right now is the best I can do, and it is enough. To me, success lies in looking at ourselves with fresh eyes, honoring ourselves and all the small steps and changes we make along the way. Out of that understanding, we can honor others, just as they are. Encounter with God Through the Senses by Brother David Stendhal Rost When someone asks me about my personal relationship with God, my spontaneous reply is a question. What do you mean by God? For decades I have spoken about religion with people all over the world and have learned that the word God must be used with utmost caution if we want to avoid misunderstandings. 
I also find far-reaching agreement among human beings when we reach that mystical core from which all religious traditions spring. Even those who cannot identify with organized religion are often deeply rooted in mystical experience. This is where I find my reference point for the meaning of the term God. The term must be anchored in that mystical awareness in which all humans agree before they start talking about it. In my best, most alive moments, in my mystical moments, I have a profound sense of belonging. At those moments I am aware of being truly at home in this universe. There is no longer any doubt in my mind that I belong to this earth household in which each member belongs to all others. Bugs to beavers, black-eyed Susans to black holes, quarks to quails, lightning to fireflies, humans to hyenas. To say yes to this limitless mutual belonging is love. When I speak of God, I mean this kind of love, this great yes to belonging. I experience this love at one and the same time as God's yes to all that exists. In saying yes, I realize God's very life and love within me. But there is more to this yes of love than a sense of belonging. There is also a deep longing. Who has not experienced in love both the longing and the belonging? Paradoxically, these two heighten each other's intensity. The more intimately we belong, the more we long to belong ever more fully. Longing adds a dynamic aspect to our yes of love. The fervor of our longing becomes the expression and the very measure of our belonging. Nothing is static. Everything is in motion with a dynamism that is, moreover, deeply personal. When love is genuine, belonging is always mutual. The beloved belongs to the lover, as the lover belongs to the beloved. I belong to this universe and to the divine yes that is its source, and this belonging is also mutual. That is why I can say, my God, not in a possessive sense, but in the sense of a loving relatedness. Now, if my deepest belonging is mutual, could my most fervent longings be mutual, too? It must be so. Staggering though it is, what I experience as my longing for God is God's longing.